Hi, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I'm Dr. Branson Parler. I'm professor of theological studies at Kuiper College here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to have you join us for this conversation. Uh, this is a conversation that's happening as, as part of our contemporary theological issues uh, course in the Master of Ministry program uh, here at Kuiper. And so that's a course that uh, Preston and I are, are co-teaching and very grateful uh, to have Chris Smith uh, uh, with us today. Uh, Chris Smith is a member of Inglewood uh, Christian Church. We met uh, over a decade ago, we were talking about, uh, our, our paths first crossed. Um, he is the founding editor of the Englewood Review of Books, uh, and he's authored several books, uh, including uh, one that we're using for our course. Uh, it's called How the Body of Christ Talks, Recovering the Practice of Conversation uh, for the Church. Uh, so we're excited to have you with us, Chris uh, Preston. Uh, again, he's my co-teacher for this course. Uh, he's the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, uh, and he's written numerous books, uh, including books uh, on sexuality, uh, pacifism and nonviolence, hell, uh, you know, all the non-controversial topics. Uh, <laughs> just picking those out, and uh, he's a he's a well-known speaker, podcaster. We're glad to have him have him with us. Um, so. Chris, as you, as I looked at this book, a part of the reason I, that, that I think for us this book was important to have uh, in this course is because we're diving into difficult theological topics, um, but thinking about this from a, from, a, from a context that is firmly embedded in the local church. Uh, so not just gearing pastors and church leaders to, uh, you know, win arguments on social media or win arguments with their friends about these difficult theological topics, but to say, you know, if you are embedded in a, in a ministry context, conversation is really important, being able to talk about um, difficult issues. And, and so I, I'd love to hear just a little bit of, of uh, your thoughts about what prompted you to write this book. Uh, you know, you, you say in there that your, your central question is, how do we learn to talk together in our churches when we've been formed by a culture that goes to great lengths to avoid conversation. Uh, so I, so I was curious to, to hear a bit about your background because our culture and churches often don't do that very well. What, what was it that led you to, uh, to write this book, to put this out there? For us? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. And I actually had to sit down and think about it uh, when you kind of uh, sent me the questions that we'd be talking about today. Uh, because I haven't really thought about it a lot. Um, like the, the earliest uh, sorts of kind of sources of where the, uh, the ideas that came together in this book came from. I mean, one thing uh, certainly is that I've been fascinated by uh, the local church, uh, fascinated by kind of our call to uh, live in community um, uh, with real embodied community uh, with our sisters and brothers. Uh, and that goes back uh, probably to college, um, maybe even earlier. Uh, and I, I kind of have a sense that, uh, and I don't know where this came from exactly, but the sense that conversation is an important part of healthy communities, mm -hmm. uh, that the ways that a community uh, uh, governs itself uh, in uh, healthy ways uh, are ways that allow for conversation uh, versus more kind of authoritarian or authoritarian leading sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think, so that's kind of one stream. Another stream, I think that's been uh, pretty uh, helpful 
uh, for me. It also kind of had its roots about in my college sort of years, uh, was um, the sort of Christian tradition that really values participatory sorts of worship. Uh, certainly the Quakers uh, would be a part of that. Uh, the Quaker, the traditional Quaker meeting uh, is a type of conversation. Uh, and also kind of the sort of house church uh, movements uh, that take literally and seriously uh, Paul's advocation, uh, admonition in um, First Corinthians, the tail end of First Corinthians 14, of, of, of advocating a sort of worship that, that people bring a word, a teaching, a song, a prayer, um, and that it kind of they, they share that with the body and kind of discern uh, what's, what's shared. And so in some senses, what he's presenting there is, is a sort of conversation, participatory sort of way of uh, worshiping uh, and uh, being together as the body of Christ. Um, and so I've had appreciation for that uh, for a long time. Um, and, uh, and so kind of a lot of these things have been working through my head for a number of years. And then I came to Englewood about 17 years ago uh, and one of the things that really drew me here was that uh, Englewood had a practice of conversation. Uh, so in the mid-90s or so, uh, probably about 25 years ago, uh, Englewood had a Sunday evening service that was kind of a light version of the Sunday morning service, a worship service. And it was dying off, as that sort of practice did in a lot of churches uh, in the mid-1990s, early to mid-1990s. Uh, but Englewood was weird in that we didn't want to give up being together on Sunday nights. Uh, so somebody had the idea, why don't we just circle up chairs uh, in one of our multi-purpose rooms and have a conversation together? Um, and we very rapidly realized uh, what, a, what a hot mess uh, we were and how we were very much on different pages. And even kind of really pre-internet, certainly pre-social media, uh, we didn't know how to talk together. Um, I think we'll probably come back to uh, some, some of the historical reasons why that's the case uh, culturally. Uh, but... Um, but it certainly was true for us and uh, kind of out of sheer stubbornness or whatever else, we kind of kept at it uh, week after week, month after month, year after year. And so I came in 17 year, years ago, probably seven or eight years into this practice of conversation here. And it really felt because of some of the things I already mentioned that were already kind of percolating uh, through my mind, it really felt like uh, coming home uh, to me. Uh, and it's just kind of always been uh, fairly natural. Um, and so kind of over the last 17 years or so, I've had a lot of opportunity to, to reflect on why, uh, certainly we've had some unique experiences uh, related to conversation, but, but why, why does that matter? Uh, why uh, does it feel um, natural? Does it uh, really resonate with uh, the gospel uh, as, uh, as we understand it? So, so those are some of the things that really kind of led me to this book. Uh, and maybe just one more thing, just more recently, probably six years ago or so, I released a book called Slow Church, yeah. uh, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus, uh, and kind of uh, looking at the ways in which our churches really need to kind of slow down and focus on kind of being the church, being community, uh, sharing life together and doing that well, instead of all the sort of quantities that we're tempted to kind of measure our success by. But kind of the, the closing note, the image that we wanted to leave people with at the end of that book, um, I co-authored it with my friend John Pattison, um, but the image that we wanted to uh, leave people with was to imagine church as dinner table conversation, mm -hmm. um, which kind of combines sort of Eucharistic uh, sorts of themes uh, with uh, the importance uh, of our experience here at Englewood of conversation. 
Uh, so really this, this book was an opportunity to kind of dive deeper into to that image uh, and, um, and probably is a little bit more kind of practically oriented. I'm not exactly the type of person to write kind of a, a five steps uh, how-to book uh, yeah. sort of thing, uh, but, but it is probably a little bit more oriented toward, um, toward how, do we, how do we practice conversation uh, rather than kind of digging into the uh, theology and cultural criticism that was very prominent in slow church. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful, and and I do really appreciate that about the book because I think even with something like conversation, it's easy to talk about it as an ideal, and and hard to figure out what does this actually look like on the ground uh, in in my context uh, in, in my church. Yeah, that's that creates a tension though, uh, because on one hand. Um, people do want and need uh, kind of practical advice, but, but because of the context, <laughs> uh, yeah. because context varies so much differently, uh, so diff there's so much difference between context, um, and the struggles that people are facing and the, the, the diversity of peoples and histories um, that, are God, that God has gathered in any particular congregation uh, really, uh, have to allow for some some flexibility and uh, and discernment in the local congregation. So you can't provide too much uh, sorts of this is how you do it. Yeah. Um, uh, that you really have to uh, uh, provide some kind of general ideas, but also allows people for some leeway to experiment um, and uh, and find their ways into healthy uh, practices of conversation that fit their their people in their context. Yeah, that's. That's that's good. That's that's really helpful. Um, so I want to I want to pivot to Preston a little bit, and I'm curious about how, uh, as you think about conversations, uh, you know, in your role as president uh, of of the center, you help pastors and church leaders think through, you know, specifically, how do you think about things like sexuality, gender, uh, and scripture. So I mean, th this is difficult stuff to walk through. Difficult to think about. Um, you know, what conversations might look like, you know, what are some things that you hear from, from pastors, from church leaders? I mean, do, do North American churches, churches in the U S do we just have this conversation thing down? We do it well. <laughs> uh, what I think, I think the answer is pretty implicit, but what, uh, what do you hear from them and see from them? Yeah. And, and so how valuable is the practice of conversation uh, based on, yeah. you know, what, what, what you're hearing and seeing? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I don't think we typically do conversations very, very well, especially when it's over contentious uh, topics. Um, and, and there's quite a few contentious topics that um, exist in the church. When it comes to like sexuality and gender, for example, and this would probably carry over to other, other topics, but I think there is just a lot of fear. Um, and, and it might come from and I, I don't like dividing things in two sides, you know, the left and the right, but for lack of better terms, I think fear um, for anybody who has a hard time engaging in a conversation across whatever divide we're talking about. I think there's a lot of fear that prevents people from engaging in an honest conversation. So if somebody is for lack of better terms, maybe on the much more conservative end on a topic like sexuality, you know, there's a fear of, um, drifting into liberalism, um, fear of straying from the Bible. Um, so if, uh, you know, if, if a pastor gets up and said, Hey, let, let's, let's kind of rethink through this 
the topic of sexuality, let's revisit a passage or two. Let's look at Romans one with an open mind, even though even that, even maybe somebody hearing that is like, well, that's the first step towards liberalism and satanic worship. You know, I mean, it's, and I think it's, there is this sense of security of what I was taught growing up, what I've always believed uh, has become the kind of the foundation of my faith. And if you start interrupting that foundation, um, then the whole thing could become, could be unraveled. Um, and then, you know, so if, and even, even the, example I was giving, like the pastor could strongly hold to say a traditional view of marriage and sexuality, hold true to the scriptures, but just wants to have the humility to, to look at scripture and kind of always go back to the text of scripture and make sure we're understanding it correctly and, and dig deeper and understand not just what we believe, but why we believe. But sometimes that open exploration of our beliefs, it's just people get really, I think, scared about that. Um, because it, the, the possibility, like, what if I'd been wrong all along? Like, they would, some, some people would rather not even open up that possibility. On the other side of the spectrum, you know, with conversations about sexuality, there might be a fear of, like, you know, being on the wrong side of history or, or being unloving, you know. Um, or, uh, yeah, the Bible might say one thing, but uh, we also know the Bible's been used to oppress people, and I don't want to be that kind of oppressive person. And, you know, all of these fears, there's a blend of healthiness there. You know, we don't want to stray from Scripture. We do want to love people well. Um, and it can be scary. It truly can be scary to, to truly reevaluate your presuppositions, but I just, I don't, over the years, I've just come to see, I don't think it's a healthy faith if you're not willing to explore the hard questions and reevaluate even some fundamental foundations of, of your faith. You know, may, maybe your presuppositions, what you were taught in Sunday school in fifth grade, may, maybe that was 100% correct. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, you know, and if it wasn't, then I think it's not a healthy faith just to kind of plaster, plaster it over, ignore it or push it down. Like, I think we need to have the, the courage um, to dare to um, reevaluate our preconceived beliefs in light of scripture. All, all that to say for a conversation to happen, a genuine conversation to happen. And I, Chris know much more about this on, on the ground than, than I would, but in my, I guess, limited experience um, when two parties, who might be on different sides of, of an issue when they both have, well, I would say that the, the level of humility that exists in each side, the humility to be willing to listen to another person, to truly seek to understand before you try to refute. If both, the, the, to, to the extent that both parties have that kind of posture, then I think a healthy conversation can really happen. To the extent where both sides assume that they're right and the other person's wrong and maybe not just wrong, but actually evil. <laughs> I don't want to get into politics yet, but <laughs> um, you know, uh, to the extent that that's the kind of cemented presupposition that a, co a real conversation just isn't, isn't going to happen. And in my experience, so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I would love to hear Chris's thoughts. If, if any of that has been chewing your local congregation or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, Chris, what do you, so you both alluded to this a little bit. Um, what what are some things that you see as barriers to good conversation? Why is good conversation in our local church communities uh, often very either 
impossible, non-existent, or just very difficult uh, to cultivate? Yeah, I mean, I think Preston uh, did a great job of kind of naming <laughs> naming a lot of the things that I've seen in my experience. Uh, the fear, uh, the fear of uh, the unknown, uh, the fear uh, of of change, of being transformed, of continuing to be transformed, um, the uh, the fear of uh, of of tweaking. Uh, the tradition that we've inherited. Uh, I think uh, I really appreciated uh, uh, Willie Jennings' uh, commentary on the book of Acts. Uh, and one of the, the things that was particularly helpful was his kind of in, his reading of the story of Peter in the house of Cornelius uh, and the ways in which uh, Peter was in a very vulnerable space uh, there uh, with wanting to be thinking of himself as a good uh, traditional uh, Jew uh, and wanting to adhere to this tradition that had formed him and was really, really uh, at the, the heart of his being. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, kind of being thrust by the spirit uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to share the love of Christ uh, with someone who is very different, uh, someone who did not uh, share the same sort, same sort of faith and the same sort of practices, uh, particularly uh, practices of eating uh, in that context, um, which was kind of for a, a good uh, law-abiding Jew, uh, very very important uh, to to their tradition and their character. Um, and so, uh, so Jennings basically says that I mean we kind of have to live moment by moment uh, and find the link between the tradition that we've inherited and the sort of continuing transformation uh, that God desires uh, and that we need both of those. We can't just throw out all of the tradition uh, and um, uh, because tradition gives us language, it helps us make mm -hmm. sense of the world and it's our identity. Uh, so we can't throw that out. Uh, but at times that tradition does need to be tweaked. The tradition that we've inherited uh, is corrupted in ways, or is incomplete at least. Um, uh, and God is always, the spirit of God is always at work, uh, drawing us into, Jennings would use the word intimacy, uh, with, uh, with those who may come from different uh, sorts of histories and backgrounds and uh, so forth. Um, and, uh, and we, it's it's a conversation is a really good way to describe that uh, uh, because we're always kind of navigating those dynamics of of being faithful to Jennings. I love this. Uh, Jennings says we're always caught between between word of God and word of God, uh, the word of God that we've inherited, uh, that yeah. we our interpretations of Scripture, but also the the continuing word of God that is continuing to transform us uh, and continuing to transform creation, heal creation. Uh, so we're kind of we sit like Peter uh, in that vulnerable space uh, between word of God and word of God. And honestly, to go back to your question, Branson, um, uh, it's, it's difficult because we don't want to be in that vulnerable space. Uh, we don't want to. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, we yeah. I was just going to say, we do, we don't exactly like that. That's, that's not like, Oh yeah, let me get to this vulnerable place. And right. <laughs> it's not what we're shooting for most of the time. Um, but, but to recognize that's, that's what we're created to be as humans as we try to as and humans and humans who are trying to be faithful to to our creator uh, and the ways that our creator is uh, is healing and restoring the creation um, 
I think is, uh, is, is part of the reason that conversation is hard, but I think conversation is also uh, really valuable uh, and really kind of at the center of, of the good news. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about, you know, when I, when I look at my church, when I look at local churches in general, part of, part of the struggle around this, I, I think about is just where either in our churches or in the broader culture, where, where are we taught? Where are we trained to have good, healthy conversations? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm not sure where that happens. I mean, so I, I think about how, you know, earlier in an earlier uh, session, Preston and I were talking about, um, you know, the importance of asking questions. And, and for me, like the, the, the first place where I really got into the conversation was my experience at a, at a Christian college where it's like, oh, now we can actually ask these questions, uh, right? To think about the irony of what you were saying earlier, Preston, it's almost like if, if, if an issue is crucial and foundational, then we definitely should not talk about it. <laughs> right? that, that, that that's almost like the mindset in our churches. Like, well, then it's it's no wonder that you would you would have uh, people growing up in the church saying, "Well, I don't even know. I don't even what what does it mean to be a Christian? Why do we hold to any of these things? Because we're not engaging in this kind of conversation, uh, you know, on a regular basis about about these kinds of things." And so, it really feels like an uphill battle in our culture because. We're being trained to have conversations through social media, through 24-hour news networks, through, you know, so it's like, no wonder then, I think pastors and church leaders are like, I don't know if anybody in my church can even have a conversation because, you know, how, how do you, how do you start? How do you get that rolling? How do you cultivate that? Um, and I don't know if you, if you have thoughts about how, how, how do we work? How do we push against this yeah. massive force in our culture that is forming us to be people who can't have good conversations. I mean, do, yeah, from, do, do we need to like literally tell people like, step, like disconnect from some yeah. of this? I mean, I'm, I'm open to that, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a big question. I, I, um, as you're talking, it made me think like, you know, John, Jonathan Haidt um, in his book, the righteous mind, he talks about how we're just so by nature tribal beings and there's safety in belonging to a tribe, whether it's a political tribe, denominational tribe, even a church tribe. That's just, I think that's just a natural human instinct. I don't know if it goes back to like survival back in when we're chasing down deer in the wilderness, whatever. But, um, I think there's that, that, twi- that play of like belonging and safety, safety, belonging, my side's right, meaning the other side's wrong. And, you know, whether it's a political party or whatever. And, and I think we do churches oftentimes kind of fall into that. So in as much as the church rhetoric, the leadership, the posture, the tone, we're naturally going to be bent towards reinforcing that tribe. When you do that, it creates suspicion to uh, against anybody else who's not part of your tribe. So I think until we can become really aware of that tendency and not fall into that, um, I think until a church can kind of create a different kind of atmosphere of, you know, humanizing uh, another theological view that you might disagree with, presenting it in good light, 
even even having you know um conversation what about like in this i i don't know if this would work you know but it'd be cool if it did you know to even have like we have a plurality of leadership at a church to be open about where they might disagree uh, and to model healthy disagreement because and i i don't know maybe maybe i've heard of a church or two that kind of did that and and even then, like a congregation, you, you could spill over into like different tribes within the church. Now I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, you know? And so I, I don't, I, so I do, I do wonder if it goes back to this really innate tribalistic instinct that we have. There's a reason why politics is so polarizing today and why people are either on one side or the other. I think because clickbaity news headlines, they know what they're doing. They, they know they could tug on those tribalistic instincts and reinforce your tribal identity. And um, it's unfortunate when the church kind of follows in, in suit. And, and yeah, to be honest, I mean, I was raised in that environment. I thought my church was literally the only sound church and everybody else who had a, a tiny thread of disagreement of where my church was at, they were on the slippery slope to liberalism. I mean, we thought that DA Carson and Wayne Grudem and Al Mohler were on a slippery slope to liberalism because they didn't cross every single T and dot every I that, that we did. It was kind of like we looked at suspicion with these closeted liberals, you know, and, and just that. And looking back, it's really clear now how that suspicion was just reinforced, reinforced, reinforced so that there was no, if you, if you see somebody else as the enemy or just intrinsically wrong, then there's no point in dialogue. In fact, I had a, I don't know how explicit I want to get. I had a professor explicitly say, I hate the term dialogue. Why would I dialogue with somebody that doesn't have the truth? You proclaim the truth. You don't dialogue with somebody who doesn't have the truth. Like they literally said that. And they were talking about like post millennials or like, you know, all millennials or, you know, like it wasn't even like <laughs> Satan worshipers or something, you know, or, or KKK members. It was like somebody who had a slightly different eschatology. Like, why would I dialogue with them? I need to preach the truth at them. Um, and, and that might be an extreme example, but I, th I do think that that subtle innate desire to want to reinforce my tribal identity, it's safe. What if my tribe's wrong? Oh, did, I, I, can't, I can't even entertain that thought because that's a really unsafe place to be. Um, so anyway, I, I, to, to, to cultivate, I think to, we need to be consciously aware of that as an environment, whether it's a school, church, whatever, and to cultivate... Um, a healthy and risky posture of um, not assuming everybody else is just completely off the rails, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe they have something to teach us. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I, talking about this makes me, you know, brings me back to Chris in, in your book where, where you talk about this really as a spirituality for the journey that there has to be, yeah, you have to abide in the messiness of life and prepare our whole self for conversation that, yeah, we do almost approach conversation through this rationalist lens of yeah, defending the truth, tracking these things down um, without kind of acknowledging some of those things going on. Um, so I'm not trying to psychologize everything, but, but to think about like when somebody says, well, I cannot talk to somebody who thinks differently than I do. Mm -hmm. That's not a, that's not a logic thing. That's like something going <laughs> on in my yeah. you know, in my, in the core of my being, in my heart, in my, you know, sense of self, all those things. Uh, and so yeah, it almost, maybe this is now a plug for the slow church book that 
you know, you can't get, you can't, you can't say, let's just do church as usual, where, where in a non-participatory, you know, show up once a week for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. And by the way, we're also going to have some deep conversations at, you know, whatever, Tuesday evening at 730. And, and, and just that's it. I mean, is, is that fair, Chris? That, that, that Yeah, yeah really no, I think it. conversation necessarily slows us down. And so I think you kind of alluded there. I really try to present uh, conversation uh, as a spiritual practice, kind of in the vein of Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, all of those folks, the rich Christian tradition of spiritual practices. I really appreciate celebration, Foster's celebration of discipline. It was really important uh, for me. Uh, especially in my kind of crucial years of formation in college and a few years after that. Um, but the, especially I've been fascinated by kind of the third part of that book, the, the sort of corporate practices. What are the practices that we share together as the church? And I think conversation is a particularly timely, it's not, it, conversation is related to some of the other practices that he talks about of guidance and uh, so forth um, in celebration of discipline, but, but he doesn't kind of explicitly kind of focus on it as its own practice. Um, and that's kind of what, in some senses, I wanted to do uh, that, especially in the kind of cultural situation that we find ourselves, uh, where there really aren't a lot of places. Uh, there's this great quote from Mr. Rogers. I think it was one of the last NPR interviews that he did in his life in, around 2000, 2001. Uh, but he says, uh, it was Terry Gross or somebody asked him, uh, what's the most important uh, factor uh, in a child's uh, development of language and culture and he said dinner table conversation um, uh, but even over the last couple decades uh, we've really lost the dinner table as a place uh, where we uh, learn to have conversations together and work through difficult issues and who's going to eat the last uh, hamburger or whatever uh, last piece of pizza or whatever we're eating um, uh, and just to to work through difficult situations and conversations. So we so yeah, I mean it is conversation is very difficult in the situation that we find ourselves because of these long histories of fragmentation. I could go on for uh, more time than we have about kind of the ways Western culture uh, has uh, given into individualism uh, and the ways that that has fragmented us. Uh, certainly, there's some bad things about uh, our desire for tribalism and to belong, uh, but we are fundamentally social beings. Um, and the history of the modern age really has been a history of, of fragmentation. We're, we're breaking apart uh, from, uh, from all the sorts of communities to which we belong, families, churches, neighborhoods, places, um, all of those sorts of things uh, really have been eroded uh, by the forces of the modern age. Um, and uh, and I think part of our work as the church right now is to uh, is to be people uh, that that really does start to embody an alternative way of being. Again, we're shaped we're sh we're shaped by these forces of the modern age just as much as anybody else. So we have to relearn them, and I think we do that through uh, through intentional practices. Um, how do you learn anything uh, that you want to do, whether it's kind of playing a musical instrument or playing a sport or whatever, riding a bicycle, um, you do it by intentionally practicing it. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of what I hope to, to offer and challenge uh, ch local churches to do, uh, is to be the place where uh, people are learning uh, to, to talk together again. And of course, this is going to have fruit. 
uh, that well overflows uh, the life of the local congregation. It's gonna, people are gonna take these practices with them uh, into their homes, into their workplaces, uh, into their neighborhoods. Um, and, and, I, and I believe, and we've seen in our experience at Englewood, that, there's, that God is working through that, uh, through in healing sorts of ways and bringing people together as we take uh, practices of conversation uh, with us um, into all the sorts of our relationships uh, and networks uh, that, that we are embedded in. Um, and I, I think that's, that's the good news. I mean, fundamentally, for me, conversation, I don't think I've said this yet, but, but conversation is fundamentally about learning to be present, uh, learning to be in relationship uh, with, with another, to, to actually uh, recon recognize the image of God uh, in another person. Um, that uh, though we may see things differently, uh, as we inevitably will, um, uh, that, uh, that the Spirit of God uh, is in that person uh, and the Spirit is working between us uh, to draw us together. Um, uh, and, uh, and God desires uh, that, that we know one another uh, and that uh, we know God in us, uh, the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, in us. Um, and, and that, that all happens uh, through, through the practice of conversation, uh, through being able to, uh, to talk to one another and really hear, hear one another and to be, to be present uh, to one another. Yeah. yeah, Chris, I just really appreciate the way you uh, end that on a positive note and a hopeful note because we can often focus on the negative. You know, we're not seeing the kind of good conversations we might want, um, but to see the way that the spirit is at work uh, and just a reminder from Jesus that you know, when, the, when the kingdom is growing, uh, it doesn't always look like, you know, we want these big fancy displays of power and show, and it may be much more, you know, these, these conversations gather around tables in church basements, in, on front porches, uh, where people are engaging each other uh, around who God is, what God is doing, uh, and how he's calling and leading them. So, uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, well, our time is up for this discussion. This, this has been fabulous. We could keep going, uh, but Chris and Preston, uh, thank you guys both so much uh, for, for giving your time uh, to this discussion. We, we greatly appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Chris. Good Thanks to chat, chat with both of you.